Please turn once again to Matthew's Gospel, this time chapter 26. As we've been studying this Gospel, when we come to certain times of the year, we move about a little bit and don't follow the exact progress through the text. We've dealt with chapter 23, and I will come back, Lord willing, to 24 and 25. I expect to spend about seven weeks, actually, in those two chapters. But for today and then for Thursday night, we'll be in chapter 26, and on Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, we'll look at chapter 28 and then back up again. But all in the gospel that God revealed through the disciple Matthew. I'm going to read chapter 26, the first 16 verses. Listen to God's holy word. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and elders of the people assembled in the place of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said where there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was staying in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him silver, 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is God's Word. Father, help us to approach it reverently, expectantly, with a great desire to meet you here and to hear that which you would direct us to know. In Jesus' name, amen. Once I arrived somewhat earlier than usual at a funeral home where I was to preside at a funeral service, I met with the family who were there briefly, and then the funeral director, as their custom is, showed me into the side room off the office where I could sit and collect my thoughts and prepare for the service. Since I was going to preach on the raising of Lazarus at that funeral, I reviewed the words of John 11, read the chapter through, and I just kept right on reading into John 12, 
which is a parallel to our text here today, as it told about Mary of Bethany and her superb act of adoration for the Lord with a broken perfume bottle, something Jesus called preparation for his burial. And I remembered then as I read John 12 what Matthew adds in verse 13 of our text to this scene. The words that wherever the gospel is preached throughout the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. After reviewing what I was preparing for the funeral, I still had a little time left and I, I don't know about you, I like to read things and I looked at what was on the table. I picked up some literature that was there. I guess this was a room where the funeral director would meet with people and arrange about services. There were some sales items there, including a full-color booklet about cemetery monuments. I picked it up, and I was reading through the glowing phrases in this literature, and my eye stuck on the phrase, lasting memorials of a lifetime made of Vermont granite in all grades and colors and shapes, engraved with all kinds of words. And I set down the sales promotion and smiled as I thought to myself about the other thing I had read and said to myself, I will choose Mary's lifetime memorial over any finely carved block of cold stone. Just before the storm of Calvary was ready to break like a thunderclap upon the head of Jesus, he had this private time we read about in our text. He was staying most of the nights, apparently that last week, in the little village of Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem, just a short walk. And he was attending, we read, a private dinner there. He had raised Lazarus from the dead, his good friend. That happened only days before this. And now he was being honored at a dinner where John would tell us with certainty that Lazarus was there, as were his sisters Mary and Martha. Interestingly, this, the host of this dinner is someone called Simon the leper. We're not being conjectural when we say that this wasn't Simon, a man who had leprosy, because if he had had active leprosy, he would not have been allowed to socialize and be the host of a dinner or even to have his own home to live in. And it is not a conjecture to say that this man is almost certainly someone who had been known for having leprosy and now was healed. How was he healed? Well, you conjecture for yourself, most likely by the power of God working in Jesus Christ. There was every reason for this to be a scene of rejoicing. The the host was someone who Jesus' power and life had touched. There were uh, this, this dear family, beloved to Jesus, Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. They were socializing. They were eating as they reclined, as they sat in those days on the floor at, around a table, a central table, maybe about two feet high, legs behind you as you leaned on the table with one elbow. It was a good time, one of those 
times you just want to cherish with close friends. No controversy, no conflict going on here. And yet nobody except the guest of honor could glimpse what was coming. What was, in fact, less than 48 hours away. The times of terrible anguish and pain of the cross itself. What we have today are these two mini-dramas encapsulated for us in this text of two lives. And the entire manner and character of these lives is actually immortalized in what they do or say here in Matthew 26. I want you to see the contrast of these two lives today and think deeply about it. The first thing we see in verses 6 to 13 is Mary of Bethany's selfless devotion to Christ. Mary's selfless devotion to Christ. Don't confuse our text with Luke chapter 7, which tells of something rather similar, a time much earlier in the ministry when a so-called sinful woman, not named, cleansed the feet of Jesus with her tears of repentance and used her long hair as a towel. That was a different person at an earlier time. Yes, the woman in our passage is not named by Matthew in his account, but the parallelism between Matthew 26 and John 12 is exact enough that we know we're talking about the same incident, and John does name her, Mary of Bethany, the sister of Lazarus who had been raised from the dead. While everyone was preoccupied with the dinner, Mary evidently took an object from the folds of her robe, from a pocket perhaps, and without asking anyone's permission, came near to Jesus as if perhaps she was going to serve him something or ask him something, and suddenly flooded his head and his person with an aromatic lotion that this little vase she had contained. John 12 says she applied it to his feet as well. I don't think there's a contradiction there. I think she simply didn't stop with his head. She anointed his head and she anointed his feet. And immediately every delicious smell of the meal that was in that room, perhaps roasted lamb and fresh baked bread and herbs, the smell of those delicious things was replaced by a cloud of strong perfume that filled the whole house. People in that time recognized that smell. They got whiffs of it from market stalls. Usually it wasn't something they were greatly familiar with because it was a very expensive smell. If you could think of whatever the most expensive French perfume is today, you ladies would know more about this than I do by far, but whatever that might be, some perfume that would be only bought by those who, who, for whom price was no object and bought not just in a, one of those little tiny bottles that lets you know that the thing is expensive because you're paying so much for so little, but bought in a quart jar. You would have some idea what was going on here. The estimates vary all over the place, but it is a virtual certainty that what Mary opened up and broke over the, the head and the feet of Jesus was worth many thousands, not hundreds, thousands of dollars in equivalent value in our time. 
It's possible that this jar was some heirloom that a wealthy relative had passed down through her family and it had come to her, meant to be used by her and perhaps her sister in little droplets behind the ear for great occasions. And here was an occasion that did not call for droplets, but for a flood of unbridled worship. And so generous was the gesture of Mary that according to the account in John 12, even the fragile jar made of a precious substance, alabaster, she didn't pour it out of the jar, she broke open the jar and sacrificed both container and contents without restraint. And she paid homage to the Son of God. Certainly this was her token of thanksgiving for a brother restored to life. What would you do if a family member you had lost and sorely grieved was suddenly restored and brought back into your home and you knew who was responsible for that? Mary was a humble believer in Jesus as her Lord, a child of grace, and her heart was was under transformation already. She needed to express herself to the one who was virtually the center of her world at that moment, And so here she is in a rare act of worship to Christ, giving spontaneously without counting how much it cost, elevating Jesus in the eyes of everyone present by lavishing on him a substance that might have anointed the forehead of a king at his coronation. The commentator Alexander McLaren wrote about this. He said, true love is always profuse in its expression." It knows no better use for the best that it owns than to lavish it upon the beloved one. It does not pause to calculate practicality as measured by a colder eye. It takes delight, McLaren said, even in the absence of any practical result. For the expression alone is purer thereby. Well, of course, that wasn't the way everybody saw it. Verses 8 and 9 tell us that there were unnamed disciples. In fact, maybe all of them. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? Now, just to be sure they were not misunderstood, they had to add this perfume could have been sold at high price and the money given to the poor. We weren't thinking it was for us, of course, but the poor... The church always has people who will contend that anything that is primarily beautiful for the praise of God needs to be measured only by the narrow yardstick of practicality. And Jesus jumped in to answer them in verse 13 and say something surprising that was not understood then, but it was later on. She did this to prepare for my burial. The commentators debate, did Mary have some knowledge, some prophetic insight into what was going to happen in the next couple days that the others could not see, what their minds were dull, but hers was keen, that, that, and there were romantic things that you know, have her seeing the cross and all. I'm not sure I want to go there because I don't think that's necessary. We don't even have to believe that Mary necessarily understood anything about the cross, but Jesus was saying What she's done will serve as, whether she understood it or not, an anointing for my burial. 
It doesn't mean she had greater knowledge, but it means Jesus knew he was going to be buried. And here was an anointing for that before the fact. And then he added that wonderful sentence in tribute to her. Wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what she has done will be told as her memorial. In other words, when you remember Mary of Bethany, what will you remember? You might remember her as being the one in John 11 who came out skeptically when Jesus arrived at Bethany and Lazarus was cold in the tomb and she said, Lord, if only you had been here, why couldn't you have done this and so on? Jesus was saying, if you remember her for that, you will remember her more for this. This is her life's memorial. We need to ask the question, who among us is capable of similar, all-consuming devotion to Christ? You say, obviously, this is a high case, this is a high example, this isn't the everyday way of worshiping Christ, and in a manner you're correct. But let me just ask this. Did you rise from bed today and think to yourself, oh, it's Sunday? And did that idea put any eagerness in your mind that it was the Lord's day and that you were coming to corporate worship of Christ as your king so that you came enthusiastically with the same kind of spirit in which you might possibly come to the wedding day of a brother or a sister or a precious friend that you knew would be an epic day in their life and a day of joy and reunion and good fellowship? Did you come here with any expectation that this would be for you the privilege of giving praise to the living and sovereign God? Or is worship for you just kind of the dull obligation that it is for many, perhaps accentuated by a gray and rainy day? In what spirit did you come? And when we ask that, we have to ask ourselves, why must all our adoration of the Lord Jesus Christ seem so shallow and stingy and cheap by comparison to what Mary did? I confess to you, I've done very few things in my life that approach this kind of extravagant reverence she had for her God and Savior. But then I turn on myself and ask, am I really aware that my acts of worship, my weekly stewardship, my deeds of service to other people in the name of Christ, all these things are actually tiny building blocks that are being fitted together to build a life memorial by which I will be remembered? How will I be remembered? Will I be remembered in even a small way for selfless devotion to Jesus Christ as Lord? Well, change direction. For we have another life here. And in the second place, I ask you to look at verses 14 to 16 that show us Judas Iscariot's memorial to selfish rebellion. What we have here are the first spoken words of Judas in the gospel. He was named before this, but always before, only just named. I'm sure the gospel authors are quite deliberate. And the Holy Spirit directed them to write that on the first time he speaks, and it's true in the other Gospels as well, 
He's speaking about treachery. And in the words we have here, they are words that lay bare the vital essence of the man's character. As he says in verse 15 to the temple leaders, what are you willing to give me if I will hand Jesus over to you? We're always reminded. You know, Judas wasn't some sly fellow with a dark, suspicious-looking countenance that nobody trusted. Quite the contrary. He was so respectable that he was elected the treasurer of these disciples. But John 12, in verse 5, records that after he died a traitor, we're not told exactly how, but probably the, the common purse that he carried with the various coins and money by which the disciples bought food and whatever needs they had day in and day out was found to be desperately short of the amount they expected to be in it, and they made the conclusion that he'd been a thief the whole time. Now imagine having carved on your tombstone this sentence. I spent my life making a profit from Jesus. I spent my life asking, what's in it for me? It takes no genius to see that Judas was 180 degrees opposite from Mary's approach that asked, what costly thing might my life give to him? Judas had no love of Christ. Grace had never penetrated his flinty exterior. He had been there the whole time, moving about, hearing everything, hearing more than Mary. He had been with Jesus longer, and in in more frequent occasions, day in, day out, with the human Christ, yet he seems to prove so well the saying that to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. In the church today, we must learn not to expect superficial believers to do anything for Christ if they lack an indebtedness to Christ. The betrayal of Judas, yes, it was a one-time historic deed. He was absolutely unique. But his grasping spirit remains alive. Within the Christian church, there have always been and there always will be people incapable of understanding single-minded devotion to Christ as Lord. The minute they see that, it it causes a a reverse reaction in them. They see a person with warm zeal for prayer or or for worship or for attending the work of the church and giving themselves to that work, and they find some way through criticism, through comments, to pour cold water on that person. Because costly sacrifice for the kingdom of God is completely outside the box of their thinking. It doesn't trouble some people in our society at all to hear that American Christians, let's not talk about the general society, the survey's been made that says American Christians spend billions of dollars more every year on pet food. I'm okay with pets, but we spend billions of dollars more on pet food than we do on the entire missionary endeavor of the Christian church. What do you think about that? People will come and say, 
I've heard it said to me, oh, all that money you send overseas for missions, you ought to be spending it here at home. Our country has great social needs. Well, I would give that remark some credibility if the person saying it was indeed a person who's ready to do anything about the physical cries of needy people who dwell at their own doorstep and and in their own place of work. If they truly cared about the poor, their remarks would be credible. Tell some church people that a city the size of Philadelphia or Pittsburgh or Dallas or any major American city needs to build, needs to build a new football stadium. And it will cost $350 million. Now people, all right, well, Chicago has one. Pittsburgh has one. Baltimore has one. I guess we need one. $350 million. How long will it last? Well, it seems like they've been getting replaced about every 40 years. $350 million for 40 years. And people say, all right, we certainly need a professional football stadium. But the same people, when they hear that facilities for healthy churches, healthy congregations to be able to worship their God and serve as a base of ministry will cost 2% of the amount of the football stadium and last a century, they say, oh, oh, waste, 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 waste. They go home to their half-million-dollar homes where they dwell. Judas is the ancestor of everyone who tries to strike a material bargain in their relationship with God. Sinclair Ferguson, a speaker we much value in this church, hasn't been here in some time now, has a new book out called In Christ Alone. I was taken by a passage in it in which Sinclair talks about Santa Christ I'd never heard that expression before. And he explained it. He means that there are people who have in their minds an idol version of Jesus, a Jesus whom they check in with from time to time to say, hey, Jesus, how am I doing? Am I behaving pretty well? If I'm behaving well, if I've been good, Santa Christ will bestow goodies and blessings on me. And my store of good behavior with Santa Christ will certainly perhaps protect me from punishment for those times when I slip up. Incredible as it seems, there are people addicted to the mentality of Judas who have a caricature of Christian life that looks like that. Mary was given. She didn't ask for it. She didn't think she was building it. Jesus gave her a memorial to her selfless devotion to him. Judas built himself a memorial which spoke about him from that day until this day about his selfish rebellion against Christ. Now as I close, let's apply this a little bit more. What will be our life's memorial? What will be your life's memorial? You see, the cross of Jesus Christ means that the love of God was poured out in such a way that it 
It cascaded down upon all those who believe in Jesus Christ. It flooded through their lives like a torrent, washing them and transforming them and then pouring out of them. And that means that responses that a true Christian makes are cross-centered and grace-based responses. We're saved by grace. We live by grace. We worship by grace. And so the great question is, what measure of grace is going to pour out of us in gratitude to Him who has become our all in all? I often think about an incident, small incident in the life of King David in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 24, David was interested in buying the field of a farmer. The man's name was Aruna. Because David wanted to build an altar there where sacrifices could be given to God. Aruna, the farmer, heard that the noble king wanted his field, a few acres. And he said, O king, you can have my field. I give it to you for free. But David turned to Aruna and said, No, I insist on paying for this land. It's fair price. And what David said has always captivated me. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that have cost me nothing. Is that a theme in your life? Is your Christianity an outpouring of gratitude for the unmerited benefits of the grace of God that you've experienced in Jesus Christ? Or is it some quietly grasping attempt to bargain with God and say, what's in it for me, God? What do I have to do to get blessed more? Will you follow the way of Mary or the way of Judas? I know which way you would say you want to follow, but which way are you following? Which one of these people are you imitating? You see, once you acknowledge by faith the tremendous work of God in securing forgiveness of sin and eternal life for us in what Christ did at Calvary and that the whole thing was about grace, unmerited favor, your response ought to be that every lock, every padlock on any closed part of your life ought to snap open in response to Him. Your bank account, your time, your home, your energies, all those doors ought to fly open. Show me a disciple of Jesus Christ whose bank account is dominated by self-interest and I'll show you a contradiction in terms. The doors must have flown open if you know what grace is. Do you want to be remembered? If you do, let someone else do the engraving on a granite marker when you die. And instead of planning in advance what will be engraved there, do what Mary did. Pour yourself out in grace-based worship and open-handed participation in the redemptive work Jesus Christ is doing in others through His church. Break open to Him sacrificial living, generous service. Take things you're hoarding for yourself and say, Lord, I don't have much, but what I have is Yours. Pour out your resources. Pour out your talents. Take on that inconvenient task. Pursue that individual near you, who you know does not know the gospel. Pursue them with prayer and caring and compassion. 
For Jesus said, whoever would save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life, gives his life for my sake and the gospel, the same shall find it. Folks, there are always many pretenders who stand at the outskirts of Christian commitment, and with a cool, appraising eye, they are estimating, how will this benefit me? The true believer, whom Jesus Christ recognizes and delights in as being one of his own, is that one who says, in the words of the hymn writer, Here, Lord, I give myself away. It is all that I can do. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we do acknowledge that our worship of you is a poor thing. We believe you gave us the example of these two people to see the way in which each of them is somehow exemplified in us. Neither, none of us perfectly meet their example. We pray that there would be none here so cold and calculating in unbelief or rebellion that they would, would look to literally profit upon how they might rebel against you. But our infidelities and our trade-offs and our deals with the idols of this world approach that. Father, thank you for the memorial that Mary set down for us. Help us, O God, to praise you with a worship that is true, wholehearted, warm, generous, willing to spend itself and be spent and to serve that you would get all the praise and you would take care of whatever memorial is left for us. In Jesus' name, amen.